Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope. This is where you get to hear how to feel happy, balanced, and worthwhile. How to make that lonely ache vanish and feel empowered, confident, and secure. I'm Lauren Abrams, and I get to help you feel that magic again since going through my own dark night of the soul by chatting with incredible leaders, healers, and elders who give us their message of hope after overcoming challenges of their own. Today, you're talking to the amazing executive producer of Project Runway, J.J. Duncan. J.J. lost her 11-year-old son, yet lives today in joy. Listen right now to find out how that is possible. JJ's the picture of resilience these days and actually has a resilience campaign going in memory of her recently passed 11-year-old son, Mason. JJ kept everyone in the loop, so to speak, with her incredible storytelling and heart-wrenching and sometimes even funny anecdotes of little Mason's sudden discovery of leukemia and the ensuing period of treatment and ultimate passing this past year. She's here today letting you know that you can get through anything and that community carries you through even when you may not be aware of just how much community you actually have. JJ's infectious spirit and openness make you so happy just to be in her presence, even a virtual one, even amidst the pain. She shows you how to get through limiting beliefs emerging on the other side telling you how you too can live in joy and even how you can live without anxiety welcome to 52 weeks of hope jj duncan oh thank you thanks for having me i'm so excited yeah i'm so glad we finally get it's just it's just it's so what we need so i appreciate it i'm very honored to be here Thanks. I'm glad we're finally getting to do this. You've always said you're a storyteller. That's what you are. And I will agree. That is what you are. We were all laughing and listening to you tell your stories the other night. And I was like, that was a good lead in. And and yeah, it had the good end. I've been repeating a lot of your stories, I have to say. But how do you want the story told about you? for this period how Mm. would you like that to be told like here you are the story about me yeah i think what i've really learned is the story about me isn't about me at all so that's really interesting Mm. you know yeah um, yeah (laughs) yeah and that and that was a long time getting there because for a long time i thought it was all about me yeah that's when i met you (laughs) yeah that's right exactly you've seen me come on quite a journey you know where i am right now in my life as you mentioned my son mason passed away last fall he was diagnosed two years ago with acute lymphoblastic leukemia he battled for eight months with you know really barbaric treatments i mean it's crazy what they put these kids through these these treatments they put them through are still like 40 year old treatments it's really not there needs to be research. That said, usually you hear childhood leukemia and it's like got a 95% cure rate. You think, oh, it'll be fine. And we, I really thought it would be fine. He went into remission. He was in maintenance treatment for about four months, uh, five months and COVID hit and everybody went inside and it was all crazy. And we thought that was crazy. And then on June 1st last year, he wasn't feeling very well. And I took him in. He, We had to actually go to the ER because it was just protocol for where he was in his maintenance treatment. It wasn't because we felt like there was an emergency and we found out he had relapsed with the cancer. And that kicked us into a high gear that lasted about another six months before he actually passed away on November 19th of 2020. So I have to say, Mason was a force. He was 11 years old when he passed. The thing I learned, I learned a lot. I learned a lot community for sure. You know, that's something you talk about a lot on this podcast. And I think that that's such a key component of what we've learned. But I also learned that it is okay to risk delight, even in the midst of the worst pain. Mason was a funny boy. He was a funny guy. And he and I 
made jokes at the most, you know, at the, at the worst times, probably as a self-defense, not, not self-defense, but a defense mechanism to get through moments. But it also, it just, it helped keep us grounded. I think it helped keep, you know what I mean? We never, we never let ourselves go too far down the path without laughing. And so when he passed, it was, I mean, losing your child, I can't, I can't begin to, I can't ever begin to describe that. And I, I will, I am forever altered. And you can tell the fact that I can even talk about it right now without like, I mean, I might cry at some point, but I'm, I'm clearly, I've compartmentalized a lot of it to be able to tell this story. So, but I, I will say that I have, I know that when he passed, I, a very big part of me just wanted to fold up. That was it. I was ready to check out here. You know, here's my time card. Bye-bye. And because I thought I don't know what else to do. And it seemed like everything that I thought should happen didn't happen. And I really, really recognized how not in control of anything I am. And I'm somebody who likes to be in control. And so the the idea of folding up and just going away was was very enticing. And I swear it was Mason's voice in me, in my heart and in my head that said, Mama, don't you dare. You're, you're too funny and you've got too much life and you've got too much energy and you have to keep going for us. And so every single day now I wake up and I wake up for Mason and I wake up for my daughter, Madeline, who's still here. And I don't want to leave her with the example that one folds after terrible tragedy. I want to leave her with the example that we continue to embrace life with all the joy we possibly can, just like Mason did to the very end. I mean, the very end, you know, if I'm going to wrap up in a story where I would say I am right now at this point in my life, it's there. It's that I am a person who I make it a point to just live my life for joy. And I don't try to be a model for anybody else. I don't try to tell everybody how to do it. I don't try to do anything but be of service, make jokes, and take care of my body, watch what comes next. When you talk about community, and I mention this a lot on the podcast because I just think it's so interesting, the parts of the world where people live the longest, the blue zones, and the healthiest is the number one reason is because of community. Mm-hmm. And not just as a word, but as a true sense of community and all yeah. of its spirit yeah. and richness. Yeah. And the community that came together for you was just amazing do you and it wasn't like oh i lived in this community all the time and everything else i mean when i met you and you talk about being controlling when i met you you were getting ready to run the la marathon and suddenly oh my hip (laughs) and you can't control that you were gonna run anyway and Mm -hmm. yeah do you want to talk about community and controlling (laughs) yeah a hundred percent you know i <laughs> my whole my whole life I have tended to be I've tended to be a leader and and I've that's a compliment I've gotten my whole life like on report cards and stuff when I was a kid and whatever you know it was always like a a, a plus like you know ten, she tends to be a leader she tends to be someone who takes charge and I was president of every club you put me in I was you know I took over and it has served me well in life. I think it helped me in my career. You know, now I, I run big shows and that's a that's a great thing. Where it did me a disservice was 
I think I went into situations thinking I had to save the day. And therefore, I sort of lived with this level of anxiety of like, what do I have to do? Now, I never let anybody see me sweat, which is why I was a good leader. But inside, I had this level of anxiety constantly that I had to somehow, like somehow I was responsible for everyone's experience. And with cancer, I was no different. I took over. I was like, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. The doc- the, all the doctors knew me. The oncologist knew me. The whole hospital came to know me. I am a big personality. I came in, I like said, this is a, and I, you know, I facilitated an environment that again, it's a double-edged sword. It really worked in a lot of ways. Mason got a lot of attention. Mason got a lot of joy and focus from that because I made sure his world was controlled. I clearly could not control blood cells. <laughs> I clearly could not control where the science is right now for the type of leukemia he had. Um, And there were moments after moments where it became clear to me that I was not in control and I didn't know what to do. And when I stopped long enough to just stop, when I looked around to my left and my right, I had an army of people surrounding me saying, we've got you, we'll hold you up. And where we live in our neighborhood, I mean, it's, you know, it's a little like area with like people going to the, you know, we all have an elementary school and there's parents and you see the same parents and people wave, but I wouldn't say that we felt like we were part of a community before this happened. And then when Mason got sick, suddenly one family said, well, you know, we've got this wood lemonade stand. Can we put up a lemonade stand and sell lemonade? My daughter wants to sell lemonade and give money that she makes to Mason's. You know, we had, there was a fund to help us because we lost, you know, everything. (laughs) I wasn't working and it was crazy. And we thought that was so sweet. Well, before we knew it, all the kids of the community came out and parents came out and we all started talking and Mason was there in the midst of that. And he was this light and everybody wanted to be there to be with him and to help show him that they were supporting him. And I, I didn't produce that. (laughs) I got quiet and I sat and I watched all of this love happening little by little. I learned to let go and let that net hold us. Our community held us up financially. They held us up emotionally. They brought groceries to our house. They, they offered to do, to take Madeline, my daughter, if we had, we were constantly running back and forth to the hospital. There were emergencies. There were middle of the night trips. There were weeks and weeks. We stayed at the hospital. Everybody, everybody pulled together. We had just an entire community who knew us by sight and would wave to us on the street. We would take Mason out for walks in his wheelchair when he wasn't in the hospital and people would stop and come talk to us and ask what they could do. And sometimes just do it without even asking. Friends from high school, friends from people just, it became this like, it became this energy of a group that I can't, I can't even put into words. And all I had to do was nothing. (laughs) And all I ended up doing was doing what, I think I really do best, which is tell stories. And I, and that didn't, that wasn't a lot of work for me. It was actually a way for me to sort of just let go and sort of let go where I am. So we had a a website where I would put up updates for his, what was going on. And I also sort of let people see into the, 
the day-to-day grind of being a parent with a child with cancer, including like, you know, not being able to meditate, not being able to eat well, not being able to exercise, just the fear of what doctors were saying to us, just the parenting of it all. Mason wanting to spend, you know, time on video games and like, I guess I should let him because he has cancer, right? You know what I mean? And these weird questions that you don't think about that are still like the day-to-day grind of being a family. And, and with that, everybody started to feel very connected even more so. And I didn't have to produce things to happen. I just learned to let go. And little by little, my anxiety of needing to be in control, needing to be the smartest person in the room, needing to have all the answers, it, it left when Mason passed, this community again came together in a way that I, I just can't even begin to tell you. They, across the street from our house, they put up a sign that said, shine forever, Mason. And they had all gone in and gotten him, you know, how you can buy a star that goes, you know, I don't know if you're not I'm clearly not buying a star. I always like it. I'm, I don't know how many people own that star. I'm sure a lot, but I think of it as like one little square mile of a star that's billions of light years away. And that belongs to Mason. Mm-hmm. And they have a map. I'm pointing because it's across the street from where I'm sitting. They have a, there's a map of where his star is. It's the second star in the handle of the Big Dipper, second star to the right, and uh, which has a connection to Neverland also from Peter Pan. It says, shine forever, Mason. And for weeks and weeks and weeks, the entire city brought candles and stuffed animals and flowers. And it looked like it was a huge memorial out in front of our house for a couple of months. And... You know, I think certainly everybody was touched by the fact that a child passed and a, a little boy that everybody liked, too. He was a very likable boy. And there's a lot of stories about him that showed his likability. And I have feelings about that as a mom, of course. But I also believe that I also believe it was part of his plan to only be here for 11 years because he came in as an old soul and he taught a lot of people a lot of things. And the cool part is, is Yes, that community came together to support us in the middle of grief. Yes, we had the meal train going and people bringing over casseroles and all that kind of stuff. Partly why I gained so much weight because I I just was emotionally (laughs) eating. But the cool thing is, is I have had many, many, many conversations with many people since then that said they really were interested in keeping this community feeling going. We didn't want to drop it. Now that Mason had passed and we were through the worst of it, we find ourselves now making dates for cookouts and park play dates. And this morning, we all went on a bike ride, this whole group. There were 22 children and and their families. So it was about 40 people riding around our streets, like cars, everything. And I'm stopping traffic at red lights. We called it Mason's memory ride because it was his favorite little thing to trail. It was like four miles, like around the neighborhood here. And when we were done, everyone was like, we should do this again. Let's just not make this about just one once in a while. Let's just, let's keep doing this. And so I've made friends with people who live on our blocks that I never before saw. I never, it was like one of the, we all live our lives in this way of like, so my physical community, like my community where I live, my neighbors came together in a way that it seems to be continuing and we're making dates for dinner parties and for, for, you know, I mean, even with COVID going, like we, we had zooms, we went, you know, we've done all of these things now with our neighbors and all of the kids at our school and the families at our school. And 
it's really incredible. It's really, really incredible. And I keep thinking, and that sign is still out there. We're going to leave it there until the one year anniversary of his passing. I keep thinking, Mason, you did this. You built this community, you know, and that's huge. That's huge. He built this community, my little boy. And, uh, and it's something now there's other people in the community going through stuff and we're going to be there for them. And that's what it is. It's not like we have to be the star of it. Mason doesn't have to be the star of it. We just came together for a reason. And now we realize this is actually really healing in a lot of ways. Yeah, it, it totally is. And, and there's so many people in the community I know that we're part of yeah. that we were also shocked when he passed and everyone, they, somebody called me, you're the mama bear. I'm like, no, we're all on equal footing here, but somebody called yeah. me that. And, and yeah. I go, we, we just carry her, we carry her through and we love each other. That's what we yeah. do. That's right. Well, you guys were the ones that first, like when he was first diagnosed, I mean, like I, at the hospital, suddenly like this particular group of ours, yeah started showing up and like bring test brought donuts for the nurses and like Amanda and Katie came and like sat with Mason and like, we all talked with dog therapists and like, it was so like, I mean, it, the love, you know, that's the thing. As soon as something like awful happens, if you surround yourself with the kind of people who are authentic and on the path, what you'll find is the love that pours through there is love. There is so much love. And that love becomes so tangible in a way that I just can't, I I can't put into words. And it's all there. It's available for anyone. Anyone. It's all here. It's like, that's why I send love. When I'm mad at someone, I send them love. That's right. Just send love. That's exactly right. Yeah. it's not original, <laughs> no, but it works. It works. It's, I mean, it's been there for centuries and it works. I mean, even you don't even have to feel it. Even if you're just like, I get it. Even if you have like a resentment and you're just like, okay, I just, I send love out to the, you know what I mean? It's like, even that will make you feel better. And I, there's something about that energy and that force that it's so bigger than we know, you know, it's so much bigger than we know. And, you know, in Mason's final moments, Stacy and I, my wife and I, we held him and we were together as a family. And I cannot describe to you the amount of love in that room, you know, and I know he felt that. And as he left his body, he became nothing but love. And it was, if you've ever been with someone when they've passed, I'm sure it's not that way for every situation. I think some people leave this world afraid, but Mason was ready and Mason knew what he was doing at that point because we had talked about it quite a bit. And it was just, there was nothing but love left, love. And it was really quite profound. I've talked to you a little bit about that, that you and Stacy have always have, you always, that moment yeah. Is, yeah. is always something. So yeah. somebody who's having a hard time now, I mean, they'll be like, well, I didn't go through that. But it, it you can never minimize somebody else's hard time because when we're in it, I had somebody used to tell me, "Well, go to Children's Hospital and look at the sick kids," and I was like, "Well, what does that have to do with what I'm going through right now? <laughs> like, I'm still yeah. hurting." Yeah. And anyway, what would you tell somebody who's just like sluggish and going, Ugh, "I feel yucky. I feel ugly. I feel I don't want to go. I don't feel like even doing what I have to do. Whatever it is, just go to work. I don't feel like it." What would you tell somebody like that? 
I think I would tell someone like that to not try, you know, it's funny because that advice of go to children's hospital is funny because I, I, on some level, I'm like, that sounds like it would be good advice, but I think it's, it's shooting past the goal. I mean, I think it's, it's actually like too big. You know what? I does was it, so young when I was given that advice. I think yeah, that now, no, I know. Like half my right? life. And it's so like, yeah, it's so, um, it's honestly, I have this thing I call, I call micro joys and it's really how I, kept going with Mason, but it's, it applies to even just a rough day, like not wanting to go to work, not having enough sleep. And before Mason got sick, trust me, I thought my problems were awful. And now that all seems laughable, not laughable. It's where I was at the time. And it's actually a, a huge part of what prepared me, I think for life. And we, they just, it's amazing how we grow and it was, it was a stage of growth. So I shouldn't poo poo it, but it just, you know, from where I, from where I was to where I went, things got very different. Micro joys. I, I think it's really important to start very small. And I, one of my micro joys, if I don't want to get out of bed in the morning, I, I think about what it feels like to wrap my hands around a hot mug of coffee. And that's a tiny moment. And these are gratitudes are what they are. And when you do, I know you talk about gratitude lists and we do a gratitude list. And I, I have had a gratitude list going as well for the last year with, with uh, some family. You learn about these things in gratitude, but instead of like at the end of the day, sort of looking back for things you're grateful for, you sort of look ahead to these little micro moments of joy. And one is wrapping my hands around a hot cup of coffee. Another one is walking outside and closing my eyes and feeling some sun and maybe a little wind on my face and taking in a big breath, feeling my feeling my breathing is to me the number one thing to go to just one deep breath where you push it all out and you deep belly breath, feeling it in your body and getting out of your head those little micro joys. And I, and it's one thing that's important about that because I, I can get tricky and I like the, the devil on my, my shoulder can say like, Oh, well, here's a micro joy. You'd love a piece of pizza right now. You joined. <laughs> it's important. These micro joys that it's not about consumption of some sort. So it's not sex or, or food or drugs or alcohol or anything like that. It's not a consumption. Oh, this makes me feel better. I must consume something. It's a sensory experience in the moment that's just very light, like the skin on your hands touching a warm cup of coffee is such a good example. And if I can just get out of bed and go to that and enjoy that moment and not let my head think about it, that's a huge, huge step in just moving through my day. And if I can continue to look for my next micro joys, you know, there's a, I read something once that if we, the more things we touch, I like to touch things. The more things we touch, it creates more neural pathway experiences in our brain, which end up helping us be more mindful of our environment and being more mindful of our experiences. And so I find it really interesting to just touch things that I've never, like when I, you know, I'm going somewhere, if I can put my hand on a rail or uh, across a branch of a tree or, or, anything like that, because it it's putting me out of this and into this, this tactile experience and into my body. And that is, that's life. I mean, that's what, you know, Mason doesn't get to do that anymore, but I, I watched him at the end and he, he wanted those little tactile experiences when he knew he was going to pass. And, 
and it was really special. And I realized it, it, it's not none of this. I'm pointing to my head for people who are listening. I, none of the answers lie in our head. They just are not in our head. Yeah. And the more I can do to put make something tactile and a, and a tangible experience and not think about it, just sense it. That's my advice for someone who can't keep going. Don't think about, oh, I'll be in a positive, I'll have a positive attitude or, oh, I'll meditate. Even meditation can feel like an assignment because it's in our head that this is what I should do, right? Uh, yeah, definitely. And it's so interesting when you're talking about the tactile and touch and everything with COVID. We were like, <laughs> I, I was wearing gloves for a while. I was, I was like, I but know. touching a tree, I mean, yeah. that touching tree is, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Well, and I was, it's funny because I was riding home from the airport yesterday and I was, I was in the back of the car and, and I was looking out of the window and I was thinking about touching things. And I was thinking about the COVID of it all because like I touch the airplane when I go in the airplane and I touch, but you know, obviously where I wash my hands a lot. Yeah, and I, I, right, I, I, yeah. But that said, I was in the car and I was looking out the window and I was looking at like, I was at a stoplight and I was looking at like a wood sign. And I was like, what would that feel like to touch it? What would that pine straw on the hot cement feel like to touch it and that sounds like a crazy thing i know but i was thinking i mean that is that to me is life to me that's life is being in our bodies and touching and experiencing and breathing and moving through this planet it's so cool it's such a cool thing and it's a way to play it's a way to play it's not if i go in trying to think about what i should be doing or what i could be doing or what's not working or what's then i'm not I am not looking at what things feel like such. I am not present in my world and I am in, in anxiety and I am not going to be a happy person. And then, then of course, going to work, getting through a relationship situation, having a conversation for God's sakes, parenting, school, all of the things that we put on ourselves to do, that stuff becomes impossible because we're so, we've so forgotten what our, world is right around in our very little world around us yeah does that make and, any uh, sense when you're talking about breathing and i mean i always say god is in the pause and yeah. taking that breath that's exactly that's so huge it's exactly. it's just remember it's just remembering <laughs> I actually, that's right well that's what it is that's what helps me remember it and god is in the pause and and i think that's where the more we train ourselves to do those little tangible things i mean and i say that I didn't come to that easily, by the way. I It became a thing I did in, in the hospital because I spent a lot of days and nights at the hospital with Mason. Yeah. And I had no exercise. I had no, I had no good meals. I had, my child was sick. He was a lot of times very angry about it, you know, and I don't blame him. I was angry about it, scared to death, not quite sure what was coming, the, you know, all the stuff. Very, very easy to go way into your head. And so one of the things I would start to do would just be like, I remember the couch bed, I would sit there and I would just pet the sheet and I would like smooth the sheet and I would smooth the sheet and I would just smooth the sheet and I would be focusing on smooth the sheet. And I realized after I did that, I felt a lot better. And so it became little things like that. And so Mason and I would invent little stupid things to do to just pass the time sometimes, but also to get out of our heads. And what they became were little mini meditations. And, you know, that's really what that is. It's being mindful. And that's such a thrown around word these days that it's become now it's like a buzzword. I don't think people really even like they hear it and they roll their eyes, you know, mindfulness yeah. training, but being mindful is 
it's having your, you know, and the mind full also is something else. Cause like you think, Oh, full mind. And yet I'm talking about something that's not, it's like your mind is full of the experience that you're having right that moment. Yes, it's being in the moment. That's, that's being it, in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly what it is. It's being yeah. here now in the moment. Yeah. Some people put that rubber band around their wrist to snap it, to remind themselves. I am here just to be in the moment right yeah. now. At this point, I mean, it's only been a few months. How do you think you've changed? I mean, mm-hmm. is it just so much that... I have had, and I'm a little in shock at this still, and I'm a little afraid it's going to go away. I have a major level of anxiety that has gone away from me. That's my next question. I was going to say, what are you doing about your anxiety? Yeah, I... In the very end, I actually went on Lexapro. I I went on Lexapro right a couple of months before he passed because what was happening was when he would call my name, when he'd say mama from another room, I would have such a flush of adrenaline. It was similar to when you breastfeed and your milk comes in when your baby cries. Every time he called me and it wasn't always for crying. Sometimes it was to, it was something stupid half the time. You know what I mean? It was like, mama, I can't reach my game controller. (laughs) But no matter what, even if I knew it was not an emergency, my physical body would go and I would flush with this adrenaline that was, it was unbearable. I mean, it was really awful. So I went on Lexapro and that helped it for the moment. And it just took the edge off. I was able to go to him and I could jump and run to him too, but it wasn't, I didn't have that terrible like electricity that ran through me. I've since come off of it. And I thought it was the Lexapro maybe, but what's interesting is, is I think, I think I lived through hell. And so now nothing really bothers me that bad. I'm at work. I've done, I'm on my second show. I've already produced one show and I'm now on another show. And these shows, the pressure on these shows, it's, you know, it's people in TV think they're curing cancer and that's what makes me laugh now. You know what I mean? And it's like, so we, (laughs) the pressure and the level and the amount of money being spent and amount of bodies trying to make a story happen for television can be very, very anxiety producing. And I'm, I'm an executive producer, so I'm in charge of a lot. And so that role has traditionally brought with it for me uh, an absolute huge amount of anxiety. Again, I had that leader thing, so I didn't like people to see it, but it was going on inside of me at all times. So I was always looking for external sources to be able to tamp it down in my life, right? And I've started trying other methods and then I'll meditate, and I do, but it's always sort of been there. And then, you know, I saw my son in... I mean, I have horror show images in my head about what Mason went through. He went through awful, awful stuff. Cancer is an ugly disease. And to see it happen to your baby is, I don't wish that on anybody ever. (sighs) You know, he shouldn't have had to go through that. But he did, and we did as a family. And now I go to work and I'm seeing everybody running around and I'm seeing all the anxiety that everybody's in. And I know the, I know what's at stake. I know everything that I'm supposed to do. Yes. I have a ton on my plate. Yes. There's a level of responsibility on my plate that feels like undoable for a lot of humans. (laughs) And yet, you know, I know I have to do it and I don't feel stressed. And I keep looking for the stress. Like, and I'm not like talking myself out of it. I'm not saying like, okay, forget. I'm not saying like I got some magic juice that like now I know how to like say stress go away. Boo. It's just not there. (laughs) It's just not there. And I really do think it's because 
And by the way, I'm much better at my job. I'm suddenly like, I feel like I've leveled up. I'm much, I'm doing better work because I'm more present. And I really think it's because I saw the worst of the worst. And now I can go through my day and I'm like, look at this, we're making TV. (laughs) Nothing feels very serious. And I'm just grateful that I get a cool job. I get to tell stories for a living. And those stories can sometimes be really neat. Like we're telling stories, you know, in these shows about about culture right now, about racism, about, you know, gender equality, about about the world in something as silly as a competition show on TV. Those topics come up and I get to tell those stories. And to me, that is the biggest cool, like awesome gifts in the world. You're so perfect for this. I I mean, I get to do that. And before I never felt that I always felt like it was a burden. And I'm now I'm like, what was I thinking? And I, I guess it's, you know, what I've, what's changed in me is I just now I'm so grateful for everything around me. I Mason, he showed me how to just risk delight, be delighted, be delighted at everything happening. And I choose to be that way now because he, I owe him that he taught all of us in my community that People like are saying things that they taught, he taught them like strangers, people I didn't know. They saw him. There's, you know, the weekend before he passed, he passed in the middle of the night on a Thursday morning at 3.30 a.m. And the Saturday before that, it was right before Thanksgiving. It was still a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving. And he wanted to decorate for the holidays. So he said, mama, go to storage and get out all the Hanukkah decorations and all the Christmas decorations. We celebrate all of it in our house. He said, go get the decorations. Mommy, that's Stacy, his other mom. Let's go get Madeline. We're going up to Beverly Drive. And so Stacy and Mason and Madeline, they put Mason in his wheelchair. He couldn't walk at that point. And they walked up to Beverly Drive and Stacy said, everyone he saw, he was waving and saying, happy holidays, happy holidays. And all of these strangers, he didn't care. He just wanted to spread joy. And he knew he knew he was dying. He knew that there was no more medicine for him. And he wanted to live. And he was just wishing everyone happy holidays. He talked to everybody at the store. They went in and they bought an ornament and he wanted Madeline to have an ornament. And we came home and we invited, it was COVID. And so we had our little bubble. My brother was in town and Stacy's brother was in town. Their godmother was here. Mason wanted everybody to sit at the dining room table. We had a family meal. He wanted Brooklyn water bagels. He wanted a bacon, egg and cheese bagel. And he hadn't eaten in weeks. Like we couldn't get him to eat soup. And suddenly he wanted that. And he wanted those tactile experiences. And then that Sunday night, we, we decorated the tree and put up the menorah and we watched Christmas movies and he held court. He told stories. He was also a storyteller. He told stories and we sang and we decorated. And three days later, he passed. And so there's no way I'm going to go through this life feeling sorry for myself now. There's just no way. You know, self-pity is the key to my basement. I don't go there. I can't. I can't go there. I will. If I start to go there, of course, you know, I do every now and again. I'm human. I don't I don't stay there for long. I look for a micro joy and uh, I get out. What What is something you think people misunderstand about you? 
Well, that's a good question. What is what do people misunderstand about me? Maybe that I'm so strong. I'm told all the time, how can you be so strong? Because I'm sitting here talking about it like now and I'm talking about it. And I can talk about like I can talk about like the dark stuff, like the I can tell some stories that are, you know, and I have. And it's not that I'm strong. To me, I mean, maybe I'm strong because I went through it, but you're not strong until after the fact. <laughs> you know, I didn't go in saying like, I feel ready for this. I feel ready for cancer. People would say over and over again, Stacy and I used to laugh about this. People would say, I don't know how you guys do it. I don't know how you do it. You're so strong. You're so strong. And Stacy and I were like, what? And I said, that's like going up to someone who's being stabbed in the stomach and they're laying on the ground bleeding while they're being repeatedly stabbed and saying, I don't know how you're doing this. You're so super strong. <laughs> like, yeah, like there's no a choice. choice. There's no there was, choice. Yeah, it was just happening. Yeah. So it just happened. And you, you know, there was no, there was not like, we couldn't just say, let's turn it off for today. I don't feel strong enough to handle cancer today. That just, that just was. I, I know. I know. Yeah. And so, so, you know, after the fact, I still don't feel strong. I don't certainly wouldn't welcome it again. You know, I, I just think that I'm wiser and having been through it and, you know, and I've said many, many a time since then that, you know, if the point of strength is what is the point of strength, it's not just a flex for others. The point of strength is to help somebody else to be strong and lift somebody else up. And so that's what my, my mission in my life is now is to turn around and help everyone else that is being repeatedly stabbed in the stomach and to not go up to them and say, wow, look at you. You're so strong. It's just to be strong for them and quietly help lift them up. So that that's the thing. I'm not strong. I'm so not strong. I'm a big weakling and I'm terrified, but I know how to tell a story. That's it. That's my, that's my only, I think that's my biggest, that's my biggest skill I got. God was like, okay, you're going to be kind of mediocre at a lot of things, but we'll make you a good storyteller. And for a long time, I lamented that. I was like, why am I, why can't I do something that's like going to help people? Uh, you know, I want to help people. I want to be bigger, you know, better. Like I need to serve the, I wanted to serve the world. Here's, this is fascinating. I wanted to serve the world, not to, the reason I wanted to serve the world was so that I could be recognized for serving the world. <laughs> I wanted the pat on the back for being someone that was so great that helped everybody. And now I don't give a shit <laughs> if people even know that I've done something. It doesn't mean anything to me. I now know that my silly reality TV storytelling or my storytelling at a dinner party helps people because it just helps us feel a little more connected. That's it. That's literally it. And it's not a lot, but I think it's a little something and it's, funny because when we were we went to houston in october with mason to baylor university actually baylor, baylor college of medicine for a clinical trial it was a hail mary pass and it was too little too late and there's a lot of reasons for that it was COVID. i've learned and a lot of things but because a lot of labs shut down during COVID. but we got tried to get him in for this one and it was a beast getting him there for it and he was the youngest person ever admitted into this first phase fda trial and it was, there was little hope going in, but it was, like I said, it was a Hail Mary pass that didn't end up working clearly. 
But the doctor on the front lines was this amazing woman named Dr. Rain Rouse. Dr. Rouse is down there in Houston working at Texas Children's Hospital and working with Baylor College of Medicine. And she is at the forefront of cancer research and really working with immunotherapies and all sorts of science that's, oh, it's right there. There's so much good science happening. And I met her and she was so inspiring and so awesome. And I had one of those moments, even in the midst of cancer, like this is like the little, like the ego in us, right? Even in the midst of everything going on, I'm like, wow, I'm not really doing anything with my life. You know what I mean? <laughs> Here's this incredible person who's curing cancer and doing all this research. And she's also, she's just, she helps inner city kids learn science and by rapping with them. I mean, she's incredible. Somehow we got to talking. She was in the room with Mason and Mason said, mama, you should do a TV show about her. And I was like, I really should. And cause she's actually really cool. And she said, what do you mean do a TV show? She didn't know what I did for a living. And Mason said, mama's a producer. And she goes, what do you produce? And I told her, Oh, I, I produce reality TV. It's, you know, and she went, Oh my God. She was the biggest reality TV fan I've ever met. She could list every show, every plot, every like, you know, she knew all of it. And I, I was sitting there blinking and she said, I don't think you understand. I wouldn't be able to like go through, like, I wouldn't be able to do what I do if I didn't have reality TV to go and just take, take all the stress away from me and let me get into something on the screen. And I'm, and I just, in that moment, I thought she was, she was awed by me and I was awed by her. And we had this really kind of this mutual admiration society of what we each did for a living. And, you know, here she was trying to save my son. And I just, it was so cool. And, And I think a lot of that took away some of this pretentious, like I need to be something in the world thing. It just melted away. It melted away. The most important thing I am in this world is somebody that takes care of my children and my wife and my animals. <laughs> That's yeah. it. That's it. I'm, you know, I'm so happy to be a mom to my kids and I'm still a mom to Mason. I still am. That's it. That's all I got to do. And if telling stories happens to be my talent, then awesome. And I get to make a paycheck at that on top of it. Sweet. You're also an amazing friend to a lot of us. So yeah, you're a lot more than that. And you've got a big community, a big family. You've got a lot, a lot, yeah. a lot more than that. Um, do you have a message of hope you want to give? A message of hope I want to give. No matter what, the sun comes up the next day. The worst can happen. The worst can happen. Like the worst. And you can think that it's all over. And no matter what, you'll be okay. The sun will come up. And you will keep walking and breathing and moving through this life. And even with Mason, the thing I told him as he was passing a couple of days before he passed, when he was still verbal, I said, honey, if we look around at nature, God is in nature to me. You see cycles, there's seasons, there's growth and there's, there's death and there's decay and there's crumbling and there's blooming and there's blossoming and it's been happening for billions and billions of years and it happens not just on this planet but out in the universe there are cycles of life and death and everything moves in a cycle and no matter what even when you pass mason is what i said to him you were moving into the next phase of your cycle And that's going to be beautiful because you've been in kind of a crappy one lately. And the wheel turns, the wheel turns. 
And when we're in a really bad spot, if we just hold on and go outside and breathe that air and feel that sun on our face and feel a little bit of oxygen in our lungs and remind ourselves that we are no different than every other particle, animal, wisp of an idea in this universe. We're in a cycle. And so it will change. If you're in a bad moment, hold on. Yeah, I've seen you through some incredible periods. And, you know, I've seen you through. That's the whole thing. The only way through is through. I've interviewed enough people and chatted with enough people on 52 Weeks of Hope that if there's one thing I've learned again and again, the only way through is through. That's it. Yeah. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't ask? And by the way, for anybody who doesn't know, all of JJ's links will be on the website and her resilience campaign and her Project Runway show. All of that will be on the website with the show notes. So that will all be accessible. So don't worry about that. But is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't I, I, ask? I'll just say, I don't know that you should have asked me, but I'll just say one of the things we're doing is we are we have a team called Team Mason. We raise money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. I'm an advocate advocate with Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And, and uh, I work with uh, the advocacy group to actually talk to Congress and, and senators about funding for research so that we can help future kids like Mason. There's a pediatric initiative as well with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And I'm on a family council for that as well. Because and JJ can't say no to anything. I can't <laughs> say no. I can't. I can't. I, I pour myself. I Like I said, I'm a force. I'm a big force of energy. So, you know, if you ever want to come out and just go on a bike ride or a hike or something like that, we actually have them going year round. Right now, this month, we're doing the Resilience Challenge. Uh, the month of June, we're raising money. We've raised so far... Uh, over $22,000. And we still, it's still at the beginning of the month. We're the number two team in the nation under the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society Ooh. Resilience Challenge. I know it's pretty incredible. I want to be number one now. <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah. What I was going to say is, even if it's not in the month of June, because Team Mason will be going through the year. And so, what we do is we're going to continue to put stuff. I need to get a specific website for this is what I need to do. That's so we'll have a link. We'll have a link for everything of JJ's yeah. on the website. So great. Thank you. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for being a guest today on 52 Weeks of Hope. Thank you so much, Laura. And I loved being here. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and take with you JJ's messages of encouragement, love, and openness. Such great messages to take into your week ahead. It's a good reminder also to do and be what's really important to you. Let's all live what we really want to live and not for someone else, but for ourselves. Join us in the Hope Club on Clubhouse in our Gratitude and Manifestation Room on Thursdays. If you're not sure what that is, come in and we'll explain that to you where we talk about what it is that we're manifesting for the weekend. We share our gratitude and raise a vibration. If you're not sure what those are, but you have this nagging feeling that you aren't doing what you're called here to do, head over to the website at 52weeksofhope.com and grab the free ebook of how to live your best self now and take a look at their simple exercises in there to help you get to your own truth. Be sure to tune in next week for a special guest that I'm super excited about. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tell two of your friends about the podcast as well as leave us a positive review. I'm Lauren Abrams. Thanks for listening.